0: Hi everyone uh, welcome to palladium magazine's digital sal- digital salon with uh professor john ferbecki i'm ash milton i'm managing editor of palladium magazine i'm joined as well by wolf tyvey uh, editor-in-chief of palladium nice to see guys wolf- yeah thanks our special guest uh dr john ferbecki uh is an assistant professor in cognitive psychology and in cognitive science at the university of toronto uh his work centers around the relationship between science and spirituality and The Meaning Crisis. We'll talk about that shortly. You can follow him on Twitter at Ferveki underscore John, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash John Ferveki. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks guys for inviting me. It's a pleasure to meet you guys. Yeah, pleasure as well. We're glad to have you here. Uh, So for those of us who weren't at our previous salons, uh, these are basically opportunities for us all to get together online um, and have intellectual uh, intellectual conversations virtually, since obviously we're not able to meet in person. Uh, we're recording this digital salon and it's going to be released on our Palladium YouTube channel. It'll also be released as a podcast. So hi to everyone uh, following us on those platforms. The salon's gonna run around 90 minutes. Uh, the first part will be discussion between John, Wolf and myself, Then we'll open it up to Q and A's from the audience. So start thinking about questions. Remember, you can send them using the Q and A feature uh, at the bottom of your screen. Please put your questions in there. If you put them in the chat, we are not gonna see them. Uh, so John, uh, to give us some context about the work that you do, um, you know, what is the meaning crisis? W- what is the key problem that you're trying to solve here? Why don't you give us some overview of what you're working on right now?
1: Okay, um, so the, the, I mean, there's a long argument uh, on my video series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, it's 50 hours. Uh, so I'll try and condense that argument <laughs> into a few minutes here. Uh, but uh, the meaning I'm talking about um, it is especially what's called meaning in life. It's the kind of meaning, not so much of sentences, but think about um, the meaning of a sentence. And let's take that as a metaphor for the kind of meaning I'm actually talking about. You know, there's a way in which a sentence, the pieces cohere together, fit together, make sense together, and connect you to the world in an appropriate way and so the metaphor is there's something analogous in the way we're interacting with the world and the way we inhabit our minds and bodies the way we form communities it's somehow analogous to that we're making meaning we are seeking connections to ourselves to each other and to the world and then what a lot of my work argues is that the reason why that's so sought after for us and why it's so predictive of a lot of outcomes like if you're low in meaning in life, you're much more prone to suicide, for example, right? Or mental health issues. Why that's the case is because of this meaning in life, this sense of connectedness actually reflects a fundamental uh, feature of our adaptive cognition. Our cognition is a highly dynamic and highly complex uh, form of cognitive processing. And what it's basically doing all the time is trying to, well, think about, just think about it. All the information available to you in the environment, all the information in your uh, long-term memory, it's vast, and all the possible combinations, all the possible ways you can combine your actions to respond to that, that's also vast and overwhelming. And this is, of course, one of the key problems facing trying to make true artificial intelligence. Because you can't check all that information. You can't check all that information and say, oh, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant. That'll take you too long. It's and a toilet explosive. And so, but here's what's amazing about you. You're doing it right now. You're zeroing in on, mm. on that relevant information. That's a process I call relevance realization. Now, there's a lot to that. And so I'm, I'm just giving the elevator pitch on it right now. But the idea is um, the, that that's very much analogous to biological evolution. Your brain is constantly... In order to do relevance realization, it's constantly evolving, not its biological fittedness, but its cognitive fittedness, its capacity to solve problems. Okay, that's enough of sort of the, the, the cog-sci background. Why is that? So if you take it, and I argue extensively, that that's the core of our adaptive intelligence, then some very interesting things become very quickly available. So what you're, the way in which your intelligence, for example, interacts with your consciousness is how things are being made salient to you right now. For example, I presume that my face is highly salient to you and your left ankle wasn't until I said left ankle. But of course, there's context in which your left ankle might become salient to you. Now, all of that is happening, very dynamic and mostly unconscious and behind your awareness and things are salient to you. And that's extremely adaptive. It's extremely adaptive. But here's the core idea. That, that adaptive connection that we seek, the processes that generate it are also the self-same processes that make you subject uh, to self-deceptive behavior. Because how self-deception largely works is that the wrong thing is made salient to you. Let me give you a clear example, okay? And you can see the conflict between the adaptive evolutionary machinery and the current situation. You want to lose weight. You go in, and there's a chocolate cake sitting on the counter. There it is. There's the chocolate cake, and it's like super salient to you. Your long-term health, not so salient. Now, you know you shouldn't eat the cake, but you eat it because it's so salient to you, Mm -hmm. or we procrastinate. Now, there are many examples of this, ways in which the very machinery that makes us adaptively intelligent makes us perpetually susceptible to self-deception. So what cultures have done, and, and the thing about that, self, the, the, that self-deception, it's self-destructive, it undermines the very connections we're seeking to establish, the connections to ourselves, to each other, and to the world. And so cultures worldwide, and across you know, historical contexts, have developed sets of practices for trying to intervene on that self-deception, ameliorating, it, modifying it, reducing it as much as possible, and also trying to enhance that connectedness, that meaning in life.
2: Well, the the self-deception, what I'm hearing is is that it's kind of inevitable, just by by feature of like having to direct your attention. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess it's it's less sort of. Uh, reducing the, the self-deception as, as compared to an objective standard as much as directing your attention towards uh, some higher important thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the main thing that uh, you, you want to ask, I think the standard, um, I mean, if you want to put a philosophical label on it, it's going to be more pragmatic at this stage of the conversation because what I'm actually asking you is what's the problem you're trying to solve? Right, right. And what's the goal you're trying to achieve. And very often, your very attempts to frame the situation, zero in on the relevant information, make it salient, are the things that actually thwart you from solving your problem. And that's the standard I'm talking about right now. So just by the standard of your very attempts to solve your own problem, because that's what intelligence is.
0: Yeah, intelligence yeah. I, I know. Or knowing that. You kind of focus on, um, I think you've termed it the frame problem, uh, correct?
1: Well, yeah, that's the core of the relevance realization problem.
0: Yeah, and and kind of how does something become relevant to us, right? Yes.
1: And also eventually how, and the reverse, how do we become relevant to other things, other people? It goes both Mm -hmm. ways. Initially, what's relevant to you is what you need to solve your problems. But a lot of your problem solving is also in your capacity to make yourself relevant to other people because most of our problem solving is done actually in community distributed cognition. Think about all the people that are working so that we can be doing what we're doing right now. Uh, Right. Yeah. And I guess there's
0: kind of two sides here, right? Because on the one hand we could think of ourselves as the choosers of what is relevant. Um, But another view might be that the world in some way presents things as relevant to us. Uh, Correct uh, me. I think you've discussed this with David Chapman. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. And I want to challenge both. I think, so relevance realization is deeper than your egoic self-awareness. Your, your sense, your agency, your cognitive agency emerges out of the evolving capacity for relevance realization because uh, everything you do actually is presupposed by it. That's why, of course, you're not a cognitive agent immediately upon birth, uh, right? It takes time. You have to actually evolve yourself, um, if you'll allow me to use that term. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the way to think of it is, well, let me use the analogy. The, bi- the biological fittedness, the great white shark, well, is that a property of the shark? Well, no, because if I put it on the desert, it dies. Is it an f- objective feature of the world? Well, no, that's not right either. It's a real relationship between the shark and the world. So it's more accurate, I would argue, to say, and this is part of what's called 4E cognitive science, that the, the, the dynamic system of the world and the dynamic system of the the brain co-create together relevance. Yeah, there's some kind of
2: dialogue there.
1: Dialogue, very much, or dynamic coupling. And so to get back to the original point, cultures, like I say, worldwide, they create ecologies of practices, sets of practices for trying to enhance this ability to couple to the world Mm -hmm. and to reduce the self-deception, the foolishness, if you'll allow me that term. And, and so, to
2: define, you mentioned sort of what problems are you solving or how are you solving your problems? But it, also it caught up in this is just defining what your problems are. Is your problem how to eat that cake or is your problem, you know, that longer term idea of, of not,
1: not eating the cake? Well, this is actually the main important point. Um, problem formulation, how you formulate your problem, how you set it up, how you, what, what, what I mean, I'm not going to say what you choose, what the relevance realization process realizes as foreground and background, mm-hmm. right? What it, right? What aspect of, like, is this a mug? Is this a potential weapon? Is, is this something I set a book upon, right? Do mm-hmm. you, you know how many properties this actually possesses? How many different ways you can interact with it and use it? And and so, and look at this. The cup presents itself as graspable to you. Is that a property of the cup? Well, no, it's not graspable by an ant. Is it a property of you? No, because of the cups around, I can't grasp. It's a property between us.
0: Right. So there's kind of, a, it, it's a process that's involving the person who's interacting with the environment and the environment itself. Very this much. Uses, dynamic much. it sounds a little heideggerian almost i'm wondering if you take influence from that <laughs> i've model. been deeply influenced by heidegger
1: i have an, an entire episode on him on the series uh, but you have to understand that heidegger also has been taken very deeply into i don't know what to call it very technical rigorous cognitive science uh so um uh, there's no there's no antinomy in cognitive science between having a very deep philosophical influence and then nevertheless kind trying to come up with you know scientifically rigorous modeling and explanation. Those are seen to go and belong together uh, very well. So, mm-hmm. one, more, uh, one more point in the argument I was making. Let's take it therefore, as Wolf said that, you know, foolishness is in a sense inevitable, our loss of connection. So we have perennial problems. We, we are perennially in danger of foolishness. We are perennially in danger of despair. So cultures create practices for trying to address that. I call that set of practices wisdom as distinct from knowledge. And we can talk a little bit more about that distinction later. Sure. And here's the thing, those practices and the normative value of wisdom, they they, they can't just sort of hang loose, right? They have to be homed in a cultural framework that validates them, guides Mm -hmm. them, vets them, transforms them with the power of distributed cognition as situations unfold through history. Now, for historical reasons that I go into great detail in the series, our framework for wisdom has largely collapsed, which Mm -hmm. means we don't have. I mean, I do this sometimes in my class. I'll say, well, when I could still do it in person, Mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, where do you go for information? Oh, well, the internet, social media, blah, 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 blah. I say, well, where do you go for knowledge? There's a little bit more time. And they'll say, well, you know, science, the university. And I'll say, well, where do you go for wisdom? And, that, and then there's a long silence. Right? Yeah. Now, what that means is people can't, they can't not do this. They have to try and deal with self-deception or their lives will fall to crap. They have to try and enhance that connectedness. So what do they do? They do it in a fragmented, autodidactic, often irrational, cobbled together, idiosyncratic, off, you know, often narcissistic fashion, and, you know, and they have varying degrees of success, but by and large, that's a project that is rife with all kinds of risks and dangers and failures, and so what we see is we see symptoms in our culture of people lacking that sense of connectedness to themselves, to each other, and to the world, and being beset so by foolishness.
2: This sounds an awful lot like uh,
1: Alistair McIntyre's
2: after virtue thesis, which is that our sort of ways of discussing uh, moral and and more generally kind of meaning related uh, things has, has collapsed. The framework has collapsed. So we're left with this kind of cobbled together soup of, of ruins essentially.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, McIntyre's book is important. Um, I think that, um, I would take it uh, more comprehensively, trying to get that his argument convergent with arguments given by people from other disciplines. That's one of the jobs of cognitive science, right? To try and get uh, multiple disciplines to converge uh, on central uh, problems and ideas. So, yes, I do think there's. I agree with him. There's an important sense in which that framework has collapsed. I tend to think that. I mean, McIntyre is not opposed to this. I, I tend to think we have to look in terms of sort of a, a comprehensive set of, you know, traditions we had. We had very much a philosophical tradition going back to Plato through Soc- yeah. you know, Socrates through Plato and Aristotle was all of that. And it integrated with, you know, a Judeo-Christian framework and it provided mm-hmm. a very comprehensive uh, framework for us. And I think that framework as a whole uh, has, and, and the reasons for its collapse are, uh, are varied, and I go into them in detail, but as a whole, it's been significantly undermined. Uh, please understand, I wanna state this right off explicitly, I am not anti-religious, I am not anti-Christian, I'm not here trying to prove any kind of atheism. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about that the, one of the largest and fastest growing demographic groups in our society are the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. These are people who say they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Now, contrary to what the new atheists say, these people are not out there all sort of, you know, deeply secularized scientific atheists. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're pursuing all kinds of spiritual behaviors for reasons that I just articulated, right? This,
2: the secularism has been collapsing too, hasn't it?
1: There's in a, a sense in which it has, in the sense in that the secularism, I think the secularism always was dependent to some degree on a cultural normativity that had a philosophical religious framework to it and in that sense, I'm it's similar to what McIntyre would argue Right, and, and you know, and you probably maybe wolf you're also alluding to sort of the onset, you know uh, From Nietzsche onwards of sort of, you know, the, the, the I don't like this term but the postmodern critique uh, of, yeah. of, of modernity Right, um, you know where notions of rationality and reason and democracy have been sort of uh, a challenge Yeah, I, I think that's true and Um, I think what's important is to see how much these people are suffering. I I, I, I gave a talk recently, I can't quite remember the exact figure, but they did a survey recently in the UK and some huge figure, like 80% of people um, under 55 think that their lives are
0: meaningless. I'm interested to hear what you think of the um, idea, which I think is quite common, these discussions that the modern world is in some way disenchanted. Um, you know, yeah. that it is somehow devoid of spiritual meaning in a way that almost no other society has been.
1: Well, yeah, so the, the Weberian thesis of the disenchantment of the world, I think Weber is one of the people that was articulating uh, one, of the, one of the causes of the emergence of the meaning crisis. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is a long argument. Human beings... I hope I've given you enough to, so this claim has at least got yeah. some intuitive plausibility. Human beings love to participate in the enhancement of meaning in life, this connectedness, this sense of connectedness. And mm-hmm. if you also accept the fact that in very many ways it is trans-egoic, it is not something generated by their ego, but something that generates their ego structure and something mm-hmm. that also generates... The you know the, the the sense of the world being a home for them it generates that agent uh, that agent arena relationship. If human beings deeply love this in the bones of their psyche, they are going to find anything symbolic, and that can be an object or an act that enhances this this sense of connectedness. They're going to find it sacred. They're going to find it intrinsically valuable for its own sake. For its own sake in a way that they do not completely, you know, understand or cannot completely articulate. And so to say that the world is just enchanted is, um, which sounds, you know, that might sound not so threatening. Well, you know, maybe we should give up all these illusions of fairies and pixies and stuff like that. But if you think of it another way, to say the world is just enchanted is to say that we don't find anything sacred. Notice, in fact, that the word sacred has just become a political term for us. It means that which is beyond questioning because of its unquestionable authority. But that's not the original meaning of sacred, right? Sacred Mm -hmm. is more something that really draws your interest. Look what the word interest originally meant, inter-essay, to be within, to participate in, right? Sacredness was very much something in which human beings were celebrating activating and accentuating
0: their capacity for connectedness. And that has been lost. Mm. That has been lost. I think that that contrast is often made, you know, disenchantment seems to be in some way wrapped up in the idea that we are now a technological or maybe a scientific society. Um, You know, as a project, we come out of the Bay Area ecosystem. And it's interesting when you look there, because from the Enlightenment period, there have always been great sort of myths and, and visions of the future bound up in that project. And even today, you know, you look at the way that yep, AI is yep. discussed in certain circles, where oh, it yeah. almost, it's, its realization is just ahead yeah. of us and it almost exercises a force, even on the past. Uh, yeah. uh, and this doesn't sound disenchanted, really.
1: Well, I mean, that's beca- it depends what you mean. Uh, and I think let's, uh, so I don't think Weber meant and this is what I would argue too, that human beings would stop seeking this. In fact, my argument is human beings continue to seek it. That's what I've been saying. Um, And they will continue to seek it uh, wherever because this is a perennial feature of our cognitive agency. I think what Weber meant is that when they seek it, there is no culturally accepted framework that validates it, homes it, corrects it, leads it, guides it. That's Weber's idea. I take it that way. So I think you're going to see all kinds of Ertzatz religious replacements. You're going to see the, you know, the religious behavior around Marvel superheroes in which we devote huge amounts of time and energy and we spend all this time in a completely fictional universe and we dress up as them and we go to Comic-Con and come on, this is a religion. This is what this is. Tell me how it's not a religion. Tell me how it's not a religion. But if you ask any of these people, well, do you belong to a religion? no why not because that whole thing is not in any way you know taken up as a serious source of cultural normativity it is merely entertainment which is something that you occupy your mind with as a distraction it's not like what church used to be you do something very similar in church and i don't mean any disparagement here to believers you go into a special place you gather with people you talk about this other world and these mythological figures and you dress up in a certain way and you participate but that was taken seriously that was not entertainment If you said to somebody church was entertainment you were insulting it what was supposed to happen there was the generation of cultural normativity that guided individuals as they tried to become wiser more virtuous nobody thinks they'd get that out of going to comic-con
0: yeah i'm interested to hear because we were talking briefly before the show started um about your influence from stoicism And uh, in Uh, America today, I think there is a kind of pessimism and the Bay Area's uniqueness seems to be to a degree that it was one of the few places where there was optimism about the future remaining. Um, Do you consider the nuns and maybe America more broadly as being a very fatalistic society? Possibly. I mean, it's hard to make judgments over uh, the United States as a
1: whole. Uh, I'm a Canadian and you guys seem a lot less homogeneous, right? You're, you're, you seem a very complex and highly polarized society in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I'm kind of hesitant as a, as a scientist to, to be that generalistic. Well, here's some things I could say. I mean, the United States is born out of a revolution. It's born within a, a Protestant framework. It's founded by, you know, Protestant fundamentalists, the Puritans, Right. And that's a utopic, progressive vision, that there's a utopic future, there's, you know, eventually a heaven on earth and a heaven in heaven, and we're going to work towards it, right? And, and, and then you get that translated into things like manifest destiny and the, 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 front, the various frontiers that are declared. The problem with that kind of utopic vision is when, it, when people start bel- stop believing it, they don't default back to neutral, if you've been bound up, and, and this is the point I want to make, if you've been not only individually, but collectively identified with the utopic vision, and that you, you, and then people come to lose faith, not just disbelieve, but lose faith in that utopic vision, that, it, that that path that's being offered is not a path that will give them transformation and transcendence, self-improvement, etc., then people don't just go back to the world being neutral. They go opposite. They they snap back into right, that the world is kind of anti-utopic, if you'll allow me that. I'm not, I don't want to use dystopic because that has a specific uh, meaning that I'm trying to avoid. What I mean by that is they see the world as a vast machine operating largely inhospitably towards them.
0: I, I guess in that context then, um, because obviously utopian projects can go badly wrong yeah. on the other hand they can also be the inspiration you know um president kennedy comes out uh, in the early 60s and says we're going to the moon and this is incredibly utopian at the time perhaps um and yet it was achieved before the decade ran out so uh, I, i'm interested do you think that fatalism of some kind is part of a healthy society or or does it kind of become an obstacle
1: um i know i you know I mean, Weiser's book, uh, Beyond Fate, made a very good argument about. You can see the, the and I think this is true, that the ancient, the, the wisdom uh, traditions of the ancient world, especially Neoplatonism, uh, but also to a certain significant Greek Stoicism, and then especially Christianity, uh, are trying to actually help human beings escape from fate. Uh, we have to be careful about what this means. And I want to make sure we're not equivocal. There's one, there's two different meanings here uh, and they shouldn't be confused. One is the sense of a destiny that where things are written and you're sort of deterministically called towards them. The other sense of fate that is more important. um, And that's the one I was actually talking about a couple of minutes ago Mm -hmm. um, is the way your death is fatal. Your death is fatal. Fatal doesn't mean causing death. Fatal means that your death um, happens because the universe unfolds independently of your narrative projects and your values and your concerns. You can have met the woman of your dreams and fallen deeply in love with her, and you step into traffic and a truck kills you. There's, there's no force because of right, your narrative project that thwarts the way the universe is going to unfold. So fatal originally meant the absurdity Of things, that things are ultimately Mm -hmm. absurd because the universe is this machine running inexorably on and on and on, no matter what you do. So it's not, it's so I, and that's the sense of fate that I'm talking about now when I'm talking about what happens when a utopic vision, right? Mm -hmm. What happens is people get the sense, right, that they're in a huge machine that is operating inexorably and indifferently to them and will thwart their goals and plans uh, no matter what they do. And th- this is why, you know, even from the eighties on, well, what, even the late seventies, we get the fears of the huge impersonal machines, the Death Star and Star Wars and all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? The huge impersonal machine yeah. that is- Reflecting going a real
0: Star Wars uh, program as well, right?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Right. And so I think what's happening now uh, and the reason why this is concerning is, you know, when people might believe that there's a destiny sense of fate that, you know, that might affect them, it might not. But when people think, when they lose the sense of a current of history that they can participate in that will take them to the promised land and they, they start to find themselves in this kind of fate that I'm talking about, we might call it the fate of despair right then this mm. this is what's really really because what happens then is right people get the sense that it doesn't matter no matter what they do right it doesn't yeah. matter no matter what they do
2: and and is that essentially what you're talking about with the meaning crisis that in some sense we've lost any sense of this grand narrative plan or cosmic destiny that we were participating in those and and that what was that the thing that was giving structure and meaning to our lives and we've lost it, and now we're sort of in this kind of despairing well, mode as a culture? I, w-
1: I would argue that that was one of the three orders. You can think, think of the three orders of the meaning space, like three dimensions, and what you can see th- things like Neoplatonic Christianity doing is giving a highly I- I- um, intricate but integrated um, picture of the three orders. The first order, the one we're talking about, is a narrative order, that there's a grand story, right? Uh, and, and that we, and we are participating in it, and our actions make a difference. And this comes out of the Axial Revolution. This comes out of Zarathustra, and it's, taking up, it's taken up into the thought of ancient uh, Israel, the exodus from Egypt, the journey to the Promised Land. This gets woven into our cultural cognitive grammar. That's one important narrative, and if that narrative is really seriously thwarted or undermined, it undermines meaning. And, but there's two other uh, uh, orders. One is a nomological order. This is the sense that the universe right, is ordered. It makes sense. There are rules to it. And if you know the rules, you can play in it well. You, it's an arena that makes sense to you. And what's happened is the scientific revolution has generated this weird thing. It's given us maybe the most powerful picture we have of the world. We're knowing the rules in some sense. But notice something really, really weird about it. And this has to do with the, the way it was born in the, you know, with Descartes and other people. The scientific worldview does not have the capacity to explain the process of science itself, the process by which scientific explanations are generated, the process by which people reason. So we have scientific explanations of everything except, well, not everything except, but everything with an an important exception, which is this. We don't have a scientific explanation of how we generate scientific explanations. We're a whole in the scientific worldview. We don't belong in it. Do you mean in the sense that we don't understand how sort
2: of human intelligence works and how cognition works? Or do you mean more in a sociological sense, like what uh, Kuhn was talking about with with the paradigm shifts and so on? Well, Uh,
1: I, I think the first sits within the second. I think we are in the middle of... Uh, a potential paradigmatic shift in which we are, well, I, I mean, I think this is what's happening, I, I hesitate to say this, but what's happening in sort of 4E cognitive science, the cutting edge of cognitive science, is we're really trying to tackle what it's going to take to re, restructure our ontology in order to try and resituate cognition and consciousness back within the scientific worldview. And this is still very much, even, even within bona fide, cognitive scientific circles, this is still very much a controversial thing to say that we will eventually succeed in this. Many people are, con- you know, the famous hard problem of consciousness that will never, listen to the word I just used, and this is a respected position, we will never have a, never have a scientific explanation of consciousness. Things like that. Now, I don't happen to agree with that, But these are intellectually respectable positions, which means I'm giving you evidence that as of right now, we don't have any good explanation of this. And we that means we don't fit into that nomological order. Finally, there's so in addition to the narrative order and the nomological order, right? There's a normative order. That, you know, in previous societies, you had ways of leveling up, of self-transcending. This is what wisdom is. You self-transcend in some viable developmental way that makes sense and is progressive and you can identify with. We don't have that anymore. We don't, we, 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 in fact, we gave up the idea basically around the 12th century that, you, that, that, that there were some truths that required transformation in order to realize them. We now think of truths as just a property of information that we merely have to consume. We think that's natural. But that's a historical creation. Right. Before that time, right, the idea was, no, no, There, are just like, and this was a, a metaphor used, you know, as the child is to the adult, the adult is to the sage. There's certain things the child just can't understand. The child has to develop. It has to self-transcend. It has to go through transformation before it's, that's why you don't let children own property and get married, et cetera, et cetera. We know this, but we somehow think when we get to a certain age, oh, well, that's all stopped. And now on, all truths are accessible to me. All I have to do is think about them, right? All I have to do is read about Mm -hmm.
0: them. Like you could basically express this in the sense of all truths are facts, Yes,
1: right. And that there's no truth that requires deep and comprehensive transformation in order to be accessible to you, Mm -hmm. in order to be appropriate to you.
0: It seems like maybe the ultimate, you know, anti-utopic fact to confront is one's own death. And this... Pandemic, obviously, has forced people to do that um, in in a real way. Uh, we've had to change our lifestyle yep, yep. And, and, and things, like you know, starting to wear masks. Um, a, a lot of social customs has changed overnight because we're suddenly forced to confront this thing. And especially in the West, obviously, we've shunted that reality aside, right? Uh, we've, we've removed ourselves from handling people who have died. It's medicalized away. I'm I'm interested to hear if you think that we've been successful in turning death into a mere fact, or whether this has somehow resisted uh, that kind of subsumption.
1: Well, I mean, this goes towards something else that is part of the meaning crisis, and actually follows on what I just said. We have reduced all knowing to one kind of knowing, which is the propositional representation of facts, right? A fact is the referent of a proposition that you believe. I believe that cats are mammals. That's a fact, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But that, but that, and and the problem with that is in that sense, there's no difficulty about me and my death. Of course, my death is a fact to me. You know, there's a famous story by, you know, by uh, Tolstoy, the death of Ivan Illich. Ivan Illich had always known that he was going to die, but he falls and he hurts himself and he doesn't get better and get better and get better. And then he realizes, and then the the line is actually like this, Ivan Illich had always known he was going to die. And then one day he realized he was going to die. The words are the same, but there's something fundamentally different. And this points to other kinds of knowing that you have that are actually fundamentally more central to your agency than your beliefs. Our culture is ideological. And I don't mean ideology in just a typical sense of it. What I mean by an ideology is the is the claim that all knowledge is propositional knowledge, that all there is to our knowing is the possession of beliefs. That's ridiculous Mm -hmm. as a claim. First of all, a lot of your knowing is in your skills. You know how to walk around. That's not a belief, Mm. right? You know how to walk around. You know how to catch a ball. You know how far to stand from somebody at a funeral.
0: Yeah, it's sort Sort of... um... There are it's truth on an experience. I actually think um, you know I'm I'm looking at our time as well. I'd like to get to some Q and A, and I think the first one actually kind of slides very nicely well, into this. Well, can I say
1: one more thing about sure, that? sure, of though? course, because I wanted to get, I want to just finish the thought about death. Go ahead. Right? Okay, um, and so that 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 procedural knowing that skill knowledge is actually dependent on your situational awareness your perspectival knowing all that salience landscaping i was talking about earlier and here's the thing your death from a in terms of perspectival knowing is mysterious to you you do not so your right perspectival knowing is about a sense of presence that's what they try to get in video games right it's a, it's your sense of here nowness mm-hmm. but you can't imagine what it's like to be here now dead You can't imagine it you can't when because whenever you're imagining it you're there right and so death is a perspectival mystery to you in contrast to how easy it is to state as a propositional fact right that perspectival knowing is really crucial to you and yet notice the contrast between the propositional knowing of the fact that you're going to be dead and the and the fact that you'd have no perspectival knowing of it. You don't know, you can't enter into it imaginatively. You can't make it a part of your experiential field. And that's part of the absurdity of death, the way it peels the kinds of knowing apart from each other and sets them against each other. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, one more thing, and then I'm happy to go to the question. And there's a deeper one below that, what I call participatory knowing. This is, this is that coupling that we were talking about, the way you and the world are coupled together that makes everything else possible for you. Most of the meaning-making machinery is not at the level of your propositional beliefs. It's at the level of your skills, your perspectival knowing, and your participatory knowing. And so one of the things death does is it shows us the inadequacy of the propositional knowing for dealing with deep issues of meaning. That's how it is powerful and important. Sorry, I just wanted to finish that argument because this, we've lost a lot of how to think about death other than as a fact.
0: Yeah, yeah, and hence why I was interested in how far its anti-utopic frame goes. We'll um, jump onto Q&As now. Um, the first one I want to go is uh, Jakes, who asks, how do you think about science and its relation to the 4E conception of the knowing subject? Uh, and in what ways can this understanding improve scientific practice? So I think you've touched a bit already on, yeah, you yep. know, the, the knowing subject, but maybe h- how does this update how we do science? And, you know, I, I'm thinking this is my PS to the question. Um, you have someone like Fire Robin, for example, who really yeah. casts doubt on the idea that the scientific method is really describing what's going on in science. Um, it's maybe more ad hoc and uh, on the fly than that. Um, yeah. So how, what, what is the impact on science here?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, the, the connection, uh, well, I went over it. I think there's these four kinds of knowing. And I think 4E uh, cognitive science really provides a lot of good uh, argument and evidence for them and for dependency relationship. Um, and this, l- just let me, give me a second on this because this actually mm-hmm. addresses the science issue that our, our ability to inferentially manipulate our proposition is actually dependent on all kinds of attentional and memory skills. And then those skills are actually dependent on our situational awareness because it's our situational awareness that tells us which skills to apply and which skills to learn and actually right, gives us the, the directedness of our, of our cognition uh, to, to learn and apply skills. And then that ultimately is sit, situated on the, our, the participatory knowing, The coordinated sense of identities that we assume and assign as we and we don't do this consciously this is always happening below the surface both of individual cognition and cultural cognition but how we can't like we have identities like I'm this particular agent and this is a particular arena and all of that is constantly emerging because how we how we're biologically cognitively and culturally coupled to the world now why did I say all that because that means that we should, rem- we should stop thinking of science just as um, something that comes out of, like Descartes did, and, and other people, perhaps also Bacon, just comes out of an inferential computational process, right? Which is the inferential manipulation of propositions to alter belief. Let's remember something about science. That sci- the scientific method was originally born out of, <coughs> well, uh, sorry, that's too broad. I want to say the experimental method. The experimental method of Galileo, (coughs) which is post-Copernicus, is actually born out of this terrific realization of of the human proclivity for self-deception. That's the point of the experimental method. The point of the experimental method is you cannot rely on your best observation, your best thinking, because it is so prone to self-deception. We have to set up this very complex set of self-corrective processes for trying to deal with our self-deception. Okay, mm-hmm. well, what that means is the following. That computational process is dependent on very important skills of attention, right? And remembering, et cetera. And then those skills are dependent on particular states of consciousness. And then those states of consciousness are ultimately dependent on particular kinds of identities we're assuming and assigning both individually and collectively. And that means that whatever theoretical knowledge we're generating up here depends on tremendous amount of wisdom for reducing all of the self deceptive proclivities in all of these undergirding forms of knowing, the procedural, the perspectival,
0: mm-hmm. and the participatory. And importantly, and, it seems like that the the fact that this has been done in a scientific working and learning community. Um, well, is quite it important is here.
1: It is and it isn't. I mean, so there's a lot of people talking about the fact that we we need to bring it, like there's, you know, you, well, you're, you're familiar, Wolf is familiar, at least with virtue ethics. We need mm-hmm. something like virtue epistemology in which yeah. uh, we think about epistemic responsibility and we think much more about, we think we, 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 we come up with a much more virtue, comprehensive notion of rationality, where rationality isn't just being logical. Rationality is, you know, systematic and reliable practices for overcoming self-deception. So for example, this will sound ridiculous, but let me give you an example. I think to be a good scientist, you should have practiced a lot of mindfulness because mindfulness is a systematic and reliable technique for doing two things, reducing attentional sources of bias and self-deception and enhancing cognitive flexibility and affording insight, which also helps to reduce self-deception. Now, if I were to say, well, in addition to, you know, learning your stats and learning how to, you know, measure the relationship between the dependent and the the independent and the dependent variable, which I'm not saying you should stop doing, the scientists should also get a lot of training in uh, mindfulness, for example, because that would actually make them much better at getting the goal they're trying to achieve. Now that strikes many people right now as ha ha ha. That is so silly. So you know, you know, so granola. But can you
2: explain? Can you explain how that would work? Like, what what is the mindfulness doing that sort of enables you to think more effectively? And then, just more generally, uh, we have a question about how the, how
1: mindfulness uh, relates to the meaning crisis in general. Okay. Well, here. So I, I'm gonna. I mean, I've I've published on this and do a lot of work on it, and I teach a, a course live stream on meditation, and you know it's multiple weeks and stuff. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to compress here a lot. So I'll do this via an argument by analogy. uh, And I'm going to ask you to accept that I have not I have much more independently valid arguments, but this, this will be sort of allow me to argue and teach at the same time. Right? So we talked about framing and we talked about focusing my let's, here's the analogy. My glasses are doing this for me. They're literally framing right. And focusing my attention. But there's a problem so my glasses are actually transparent to me i'm not seeing them i'm seeing through them beyond them and by means of them you know what i need to do sometimes you saw me do it before we started this i need to do this sometimes i need to step back and look at my glasses rather than looking through them because that's the only way i can see if there's something distorting on that surface now how do i know if i've removed the distortion do i just stay looking at it no, I have to put my glasses on and see if I now see differently than I did before. Meditation is doing this, if you'll, right? It's stepping back and looking at your mind, the patterns and processes that are framing your experience. And they're normally transparent to you. You're not aware of them. You're aware through them. Mindfulness is to step back and look at that framing. That's a meditative practice. But there's also mindfulness practices in when you do this you put the frame back on, you start to look at the world and see if you can see the world differently than you did before. Not primarily beliefs, but in terms of your perspectival knowing and your participatory knowing, right? Can, is it possible for you to have a different kinds of salience landscaping? Can you break out of addiction? Can you break out of the confirmation bias? Can you at the level of participatory knowing is it possible for you to assume new identities that you couldn't assume before that's how it matters do
0: you that's think that how mindfulness is relevant do you think that phenomena like insight or inspiration are essentially some kind of frame breaking or rearrangement totally so insight is a movement look look what
1: this does is this allows me to break frame it allows me to break the frame that i was in
2: Mm-hmm.
1: this allows me to make a frame that i haven't yet been in i can break the frame i was in this is what the original meaning of dirkbrook breakthrough breakthrough i break the frame i'm in and then i move through to something that i where i wasn't before mm-hmm. yes that is what it, i do a lot of work on insight that's exactly what an insight what insight is and many problems are unsolvable, not because you don't have all kinds of data, not because you don't have all kinds of inferential machinery. It's because you've misframed them, and you have to break out to a new frame. Do you want to do that?
0: Yeah. Do you see insight? I guess as something that can be, let's say, the probability of it increased or somehow drawn out, or is it in a way a pure chance type of thing? No, no.
1: <laughs> That's what I was saying. You can combine. Skills and states of minds and identities, that's what a virtue does. It combines all of those. That's what mindfulness does. You can cultivate virtue that makes you more insightful. You can, in mindfulness practices, enhance your cognitive flexibility. They are predictive of enhanced insight. They're predictive of the enhanced flow experience. Yes, very much. And, and, And that's why they would constitute, that's my point. That's why they would constitute a kind of rationality because they are systematically and reliably capable of helping you overcome certain kinds of self deceptive behavior that are thwarting your problem solving abilities, thwarting your intelligence.
0: Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm conscious of the time as well. I know you can only be here until kind of 930 hard stop. Yes. So I'm going to start moving a little more quickly through questions as well. Please, please. Um, Stephen asks, uh, so if you're looking at those who are effectively addressing the meaning crisis, to what extent do those attempts start to de- resemble traditional religions or even have to be embedded in traditional religions? Yeah, and yeah. to what extent do they have to be separate?
1: So, uh, this is an, um, this, uh, thank you. This is a really uh, important question. This goes towards a, the problem I call the, w- that we need a religion that's not a religion. We need all the functionality that used to be present in religion, all of these kinds of practices for altering cognition and consciousness and identity. The thing that used to comprehensively do that, right, for wisdom was religion. And the only thing, the fact that could do it comprehensively, that could change cognition and consciousness and character and community comprehensively, which is what we need in order to deal with the world's problems right now, the only thing that could do that in the past was religion. The problem for many of us, as I said, is we're nuns. And that the, that, that the religious framework we, we've inherited from the Axial Revolution of the two worlds with the natural and the supernatural, and that the spiritual is somehow forever beyond right, and divided from the scientific, that, that's no longer viable for many of us. So we, we, we have to somehow extract from, and I, and I have a lot of deep respect for religion by the way, we must extract from religion that deep functionality but retool it, re-engineer it, so that it's not dependent on that homing in a mythology that many people no longer find viable so that it can be situated within and situate us and situate us within the dominant scientific worldview. That's what I think we need to do. So that's why I call it a religion that's not a religion. It has to have all the functionality of a religion, but it's not gonna be any particular,
0: mm. right? Axial it, age religion. It, it sounds a little like, uh, and I'm gonna speak from uh, my Catholic lens here, uh, you're, you're interested in how one can return to a liturgical mode of being maybe.
1: Yep, a a liturgical mode of being that's also, for reasons I just tried to touch upon a few minutes ago, also deeply rational, deeply committed to rationality, deeply committed to overcoming to self-deception, deeply uh, committed to cultivating wisdom and affording enhanced connectedness, adaptive connectedness, and meaning in life. So going back earlier to your example of the
2: Comic-Con religion or pseudo-religion, it would sort of seem from that example that it's actually the hard part is not necessarily sort of creating something that people participate in and believe in and kind of that gives the structure to them, but rather connecting that to the, I guess, larger narratives of meaning and, and larger structures in society that are actually meaningful and,
1: and drive towards some kind of self-overcoming. Yes, very much. So making, making the, the communitas and the symbolism and the sense of sacredness, but uh, uh, interconnected with and interdependent with the, the sampiential project of cultivating wisdom, and society itself. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So look, 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 think about things like, think about comics or think about video games. You know, the, you know another symptom of the meaning crisis is, the, is it pe- the virtual exodus. People are now saying reality is broken and they prefer to spend time in the virtual world. Why? What does a video game give you? It gives you a clear narrative that in which you play an important role. There are rules that you understand and you can follow and you can fit in. And it gives you a way to self-transcend, to level up. It gives you the three missing orders, right? right. And, and, until, and it, but until whatever it is we're doing religiously gives us the three orders, but not in some decadent romantic fashion, but gives us the three orders in a viable way that reliably helps us overcome self-deception and enhance meaning in life, makes us wiser, then it's not going to address the perennial problems that face humanity. And it's only going to be an earthsatz religion.
0: I, uh, there, there's a lot of rabbit holes I think we could go down here. I'm going to keep us moving on the questions. Yeah, though. let's do another question. Um, Nicholas asks, uh, does atomization and loneliness play a role in the crisis of meaning? Oh, totally. Uh, and that, that is meaning breaking down as social expressions and, and intimacy. I, I'm going to tack something on here as well. I'm interested to hear in how you're thinking of this mode of interaction, um, you know, we've already for at least 10, 15, 20 years now moved increasingly modes of interaction onto these disembodied digital platforms. Now we have uh, a lot of that interaction, almost all of it outside our immediate quarantine households is happening on them. And yet th- there's also been so much of it happening. You know, Communities, salons like this one, Um, I've heard people talk about feeling almost a renewed intimacy with certain communities or they're even meeting more people um, in these environments than they might have if they're just posting on Twitter or something. So this broad theme of atomization and then our current pandemic context.
1: Yeah, so the work of Han, especially The Scent of Time, The Agony of Eros, right? Burnout Society, very much on this theme of atomization. Yes. so if meaning in life is not so much about propositional content, but the enacted, lived sense of connectedness, being connected to yourself, connected to each other, connecting to the world, mattering to something larger than yourself, then loneliness is a sign that those connections have been deeply, deeply frayed, if not severed. And that is a pervasive kind of uh, meaning crisis experience, uh, intense loneliness. Now, what's interesting about this medium, as Ash points out, is it's got some really interesting qualities to it. For example, look at how much my face fills the, the screen right now, right? Mm-hmm. If I was, if my face was fill, fill, filling your visual field and we were in person, this would be socially inappropriate. You would right. go, whoa, this, whoa, was whoa, creepy, strange guy. But this medium has a different grammar to it. So what it allows for is it allows for a really intense, uh, you know, uh, you know, complex expressivity in great detail people are allowed to be closer right and they're also their faces are also lit because it's uh, uh and there's no actual spatial representation uh, of our relationship because we're we're sort of in non-space right and so this is uh, you know uh, i think it was brett weinstein talked about this digital campfires i started talking about this almost at the same time as virtual campfires this is like what we used to have in campfires where you know we were, we were in a circle and we were very close and when our faces were lit and very salient and everything else is in the dark. Um, so it's very ancient. It's very ancient to us. But there's a modern thing. So we're wired for it. I mean, we, right. we, we've had fire for several species, speciations, right? It goes back to erectus at least. And so we're wired for this. Matt Rosano made an excellent argument for this in supernatural selection. That's why we're sort of wired. Think about how that makes us meditative, sitting around a campfire, you zoom in on the fire, you follow it, and then you zoom out, and, you, right? and then you zoom in and you zoom out. It's like mm-hmm. it, it, it conduces you to meditation, right? So we're wired for it in that sense. But then there's something weird because look what's happening right now. We have this in-person intimacy that brings back the primordial ancient campfire, but at the same time, we're recording this. So the ancient division between in-person and, you know, like text. So Plato, Socrates didn't want to write anything down because the text was dead, right? Because it's permanent. Right. But notice how we're joining. Symbolon means to join. We're joining two things that used to be opposed to each other together. We have this online, direct, intimate interaction, like in-person dialogue, but it's also permanently recorded like text.
2: Well, this is, I mean, that speaking of Socrates, like we, we know of Socrates through dialogues, right? And, yes, and it yes. sort of carries that, that same
1: intention. Yes, well, very much. I mean, I, I'm doing a huge, my next product, my next series is called After Socrates, trying to figure out what dial, dialectic is and what the dialogos progr- process is and how important it is to this collective intelligence we're building. But the point mm-hmm. I'm trying to make is, that this medium—it sounds like a Marshall McLuhan point—but this medium is really interesting in that it tr- it triggers some very ancient and primordial stuff, but it also is really radically new in that it brings things together that were for a very long time op- opposed to each other: the text yeah. and in person, and and that means it's affording like it is affording new opportunities to significantly engage people and involve people.
2: Great. So yeah, let's, let's move on to another question. This is all great stuff. Natalia asks, are the truths the sage knows, uh, or or what are the truths that the sage can know versus the adult? Like, like, can we get some kind of more intuitive handle on what we're talking about there when, when sort of someone levels up into someone capable of knowing more types of things?
1: Yeah. So, well, first of all, let's, uh, let's remember that we're talking about the four kinds of knowing. So not just the truth of the proposition, but the power of our skills, the presence of our perspectives, and, and the sense of connectedness and belonging from our, our participatory knowing. So okay. what the, the sage is going to have insight into all of these. And what, what does that mean? Think about somebody that you think is perhaps a little bit wiser than you. They may mm-hmm. not know more than you, but they have a particular kind of insight, a particular kind of gift. They can come into a very messy, complex, shifting situation and often cut through, right? They can zero, and notice how this goes back to what we are talking about at the very beginning. They can, better than you and I, zero in on the relevant information, what really matters in this situation. And then they, they have sets of skills that they can bring to bear on what matters, often more powerful than ours. And so they different- know- what different, rules to take. Go ahead. Different people
2: uh, seem to have sort of different areas that they can do this in. Uh, you know, when I think about the answer to that question, I think about a bunch of my friends who will come in and really cut through uh, some confusion that I was having, but then also ah. we have the opposite experience where I go and cut through some- Some. Uh, this some, is called you know, the words.
1: Solomon Effect. So right. uh, this is work from Igor Grossman. So if I, if I ask you, but you can do this, you can learn to do this for yourself. Mm-hmm. Because if I, if I ask you to describe a problem, what you'll do, and notice how we're invoking perspectival knowing here right away, is you, mm-hmm. will, 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 you without thinking, automatically, will describe it from a first-person perspective. This is my mm-hmm. problem, and this is how I see it, right? And this is my role, and this is my identity. Now you ask the person, okay, now re-describe the same problem as if somebody else was describing it. It's your problem, but they're describing it. Describe it from a third-person perspective. What inevitably happens is people get insight, and they realize things, that they couldn't realize from their first-person perspective. You know what the sage has done? Like the Stoics doing the view from above or the meditating Buddhist, right? The sage has done this, that, that little thought experiment, but done it deeply and cultivated a deep virtue in that so they can do that. It's second nature to them to do that in a way in which it never occurs to us
2: to do it. So they're developing the skill of occupying some perspective other than their own in a way, whether that be like God's perspective or the perspective of someone that they're trying to become or something. I want to add
1: to that, Wolf. It's not just a skill. It's also the needed states of mind, states of consciousness, and also particularly identities and roles. They need all of that. They need the skills, the correct states of consciousness and mind, and the correct processes of identification. When they do do all of that, that comprehensively, then they're wise. And, and that's, why
2: it, that's why it has to be sort of a self-transformation because we're talking yep. about a transformation of our identity, of our perspective, yep. of, of all these things. Yep, exactly.
0: I, I want to keep going. I see we have a lot of questions still lined up. So <laughs> Nicholas asks an interesting one. In terms of the utopian narrative versus fatalism, does the fatalistic version run counter to or hand-in-hand hand with apocalyptic narratives? So ah, both religious ah. and maybe non-religious end-of-the-world yeah. scenarios. You can actually...
1: You, that's a great question. You can actually see the snap I talked about, about uh, the ch- transformation of apocalypse. So in the book uh, that I wrote with Christopher Massa, Pietro and Philip Micevic, uh, zombies in Western culture, a 21st century crisis. Notice how the, because we, t- we argued that the zombie is an emergent myth. The zombie is very recent, especially our version of it. Mm-hmm. And the zombie is a myth expressing the meaning crisis. And what's happened is, right, the, uh, this independent myth, right, of apocalypse was secularized. People like H. G. Wells and *The World of the Worlds*, right? Mm-hmm. And it gets secularized, and then these two myths come together, and they uh, in in the that's why you often find them pine, uh, uh, put together the zombie apocalypse, because apocalypse didn't uh, init, apocalypse w- meant like well think about um, how it's actually translated in the Bible Revelation, the apocalypse was the frame breaking of the old world. And then the revelation of the new world. It was about the most fo- comprehensive insight, disclosure, transformation of, you know, people, of a- agent and arena relationship,
0: right? Yeah, It's an unveiling.
1: Well, it's an, it's an unveiling. It's a transformation. It's a, re- it's a new creation. This, these are the ways of thinking about it. And mm-hmm. then what happened for us, right? And notice how that has a promised land feel to it, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What happened for us, is the apocalypse lost all of that. And then it becomes, right, the, the despair generating destruction of the world with, no, it, with, with, with nothing beyond it. Go but ahead. at the same
2: time, like w- what I notice, if you look at the sort of apocalyptic narratives that people run around with, you sort of get this sense, uh, either implicitly or explicitly, that they actually expect sort of some kind of utopia to, to follow the apocalypse, like that it is this older version of the apocalypse where it's it's this unveiling like it's it's like the the corrupt world kind of collapses and then some new better thing is rebuilt like i that's that's the sense that i get of how people kind of talk about it and even want it to happen okay well certainly certainly what you're saying is true that there is this like sense of the end of the world that is just like the zombie apocalypse but then you also get this uh a lot of people kind of Orienting around the apocalypse as, as almost their kind of plan or their, their grand narrative of how things yeah. are going to become good.
1: And so I so I have a couple of things to say to that. One of that is, is, is that's kind of a sub deceptive thing because that's a, that's basically a t- apocalypse for everybody else, utopia for me, um, which is kind of a weird thing to do. Part 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 of what I said what I said is because we had several generations where we were trained in just the negative version of the apocalypse was the nuclear holocaust. Right. So, right, and then, you know, and then that was sort of the destruction. Um, and then when we're, and so most of the portrayals of, of I, I know what you're talking about, Wolf, I know that there are people that, you know, I, I forget, the, the survivalists, the people who are sort Yeah, of... I, and,
2: and perhaps that's more common nowadays, and it's, it hasn't quite sort of leaked into popular depictions in movies or something, but it, we certainly see a lot of it uh, in, in sort of political discussion.
0: Yeah, I, I think that maybe the two, sort of to take one from each side, um, one might be the idea that societies become so decadent in some sense that it collapses yep. and something better follows. The other might be, you know, environmental damage. Um, you might see this in some ways among the extinction rebellion type of, yep, uh, yep, yep. personality where there is this interesting, like very, I would say almost religious way that it's discussed, right? Yep. Um, we get a return to nature of some kind after everything goes.
1: So that's interesting because then that, that, that's sort of what I was say, seeing then. What, what you get is, you do have, you, you, so the, the notion of apocalypse is actually bivalent for us. There's one in which it's actually a way of trying to bring back the last ditch attempt to bring back the utopia, right? And, and then there's another one which is very prevalent, which is, no, no, and this is the, this is the prototypical zombie apocalypse. You know, everything degrades and, and, and decays, and it just does that perpetually. Because, because the, the, reason why, the reason why the two come together, by the way, is because they're both inversions of Christianity. So the apocalypse, in the zombie apocalypse, is not the revelation of a new world, but just the slow eroding of this world. And the zombie is the perversion of the Christian myth of resurrection. You're supposed to be resurrected to a new life. It's supposed to be the final way in which you, you become, the virtuous agent you were always supposed to be, but what's the zombie? Well, it's life after death, but of perpetual decadence and and decay. Yeah, right? perpetual vice.
0: Hmm. I I want to jump in here. Um, we're coming slowly to time. Uh, I think we can maybe do one more question. Perhaps we could, if we can answer this in about two minutes cap, I'll try, and then I'll try it, I'll uh, try we try. can wind <laughs> things down. Uh, I think it's an interesting one. Um, so the question is apart. From notions of faith and the sacred, which we've kind of been discussing, what are some other adaptive historical concepts which we've lost our grounding to?
1: Well, like I said, I've made a strong case throughout for uh, wisdom. We've lost that. And we have seriously reduced and truncated knowledge and seriously reduced and truncated rationality. And those all go together. The way we have lost, pretty much lost wisdom not only as a cultural construct, but we don't have our wisdom institutions or traditions anymore. Mm-hmm. We've reduced knowledge to propositional knowledge, ideology. And as I said, we, we have reduced rationality to, just to, we, we treat these terms as synonyms, rational and logical. And they're not, they're not at all. And so mm-hmm. I think those three, and they constellate and belong together and talk to each other. We have reduced all of them and lost touch with them in a significant fashion. A lot of my work is about trying to re-expand and reground those three notions again for
0: us. It seems to be the difference between logos and discursive reasoning, perhaps.
1: Well, or, or, there, or maybe even between dia logos and then nous, right, uh, which is that insight that you know, grasps the whole zero is in on the relevant information appropriately comports you towards it, which again, we've lost that, but that, that was very clearly in the Neoplatonic tradition that, you know, the discursive reasoning was supposed to lead you beyond it. Right.
2: Are you taking that as sort of the ideal of rationality as opposed to sort of just logic?
1: Yes, very much. Mm -hmm. The person who could live deeply in a viable and coupled way to the world is more important to me than somebody, Who can state some justified true beliefs? Stating justified true beliefs is important. I didn't say it's not important. I'm saying what's more important. That's why I often ask people when they we get into long discussions. I don't I say, don't tell me what you believe, tell me what you practice.
0: Mm. Well, I'm looking at the time here, guys. Uh we're approaching the end of our allotted time with John Fervake, and I think it's about time we're gonna have to wrap up our digital salon. We had a lot of questions here we couldn't get to, want I thank everyone for their participation. And John, I guess we'll just have to have you back again at some point. I mean, well,
1: I'd be happy to session. do so. I'd be happy uh,
0: to do so. Yeah, it would be great. I want to give you a special thanks, John, for um, this fascinating conversation. Uh, we covered a lot of points here and, um, you know, especially at a time like this, I think that discussions around meaning are becoming quite prevalent. I, oh, yeah. You know, I'm hoping they don't go away. I, I, I think it's a mistake to want to return entirely to so-called normalcy. Yeah, I don't
1: um, think that's going to happen.
0: So. Yeah, but I think we'll have to continue this conversation in future. I, I'd be happy
1: to come back and answer more questions.
0: Fantastic. So for those listening, uh, you can follow John on Twitter at Ferveki underscore John. Uh, and you can follow Palladium on Twitter as well at Palladium Mag. Uh, John, is there any project or anything you'd like to mention? before Well, we... I mean, if
1: people are interested in this whole discussion around the meaning crisis, uh, please check out my video series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And then there's going to be a follow-up series that I'm working on right now that tries to tap into this ancient tradition and put it into discussion with these emerging forms of discourse called After Socrates, trying to figure out what was the ancient dialogical way of cultivating wisdom and how can we bring it into this, what we're doing right now, so that mm-hmm. we, can, we can use this, right? Because there's going to be lots of people that are going to try and use this to make money and blah, blah, blah. But can we use this to, again, cultivate wisdom and afford meaning? And that's the next project that's coming down the line.
0: Great. Well, I think a lot of people look forward to it. Uh, thanks again. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. And we're going to wrap up now. Have a good evening, everyone.